Let's all humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Father in heaven, we come before you on your Sabbath day, the special day that you have set aside, the time that we are to approach you in worship and honor and study and learning so that we might become more dedicated to you, that we might be aware of what you expect of us as we go through this life and avoid the dead ends, the wrong turns of this life, that we may keep on that straight and narrow way. We pray that you will be with us today as we enjoy your Sabbath. We also ask a special prayer on those that have suffered loss, those who are ill, that you would be their Yahweh Rapha and encourage them as well. We pray also that you'll guide each of us throughout our week as we prepare for the special time of Passover and the feast, that more would come to a knowledge of truth and that we would have a right understanding of you in all that we do. This prayer and petition we ask in Yahshua's name, hallelujah. You may be seated. One day, years ago, I was getting ready for work in the usual way. It was dark, probably in December, I don't remember. Uh, but I got dressed and uh, marched off to work. Well, I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, this is what I did. <laughs> and I wore these mismatched shoes all day long. And I, I, I didn't know it until I got home. What really astounded me, and nobody said anything. I mean, I was in contact with probably 100 people, you know, in one way or another during work. Nobody noticed. Nobody said anything. Maybe they're just too kind. You know, they didn't want, want to embarrass me or maybe, you know, a little joke here and there. But um, I guess that was the big, uh, the big lesson I learned is that uh, people don't always notice. And, uh, you know, a mistake in wardrobe is one thing. But how many go through their entire lives oblivious to the teachings of Scripture? And they don't seem to even notice. And it's as plain as day that their beliefs, what they practice, what they do, are not in the scriptures. They may never make a critical comparison in the cold light of the word, even though the scripture commands that we all do. We're commanded to prove all things. We'll talk about that today. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul wrote that. He said, then hold fast that which is good. So in order to know what's good, you've got to be able to prove what it is and then grab onto it. Prove is the Greek word dokimazo. Interesting word. It means to prove with a view toward approving. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, that's what it says here. And yeah, that matches with this. There's a whole point to it. It's a critical analysis is what we do. Dig deep and study all the permutations from Old Testament through New Testament, all the different verses. Everything must, everything must jive. Everything must harmonize. You know, the Thessalonians, I didn't, it's really kind of hard to see what uh, they were all about, but they were kind of all over the map. There were a lot of Jews there who didn't like Paul. There were a lot of Gentiles coming in who didn't understand what was going on. And so... 
Paul said, in contrast, the Bereans were called noble in Acts chapter 17. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that what? They received the word. They were willing to take the word for what it, you know, what it is, what it says, with all readiness of mind. They wanted to know what it was. They wanted to see what's true. Unlike so many today that are so apathetic, not pathetic, apathetic, uh, when it comes to the word, comes to the scriptures. And what did they do? They searched daily. Daily. Do we do that? Do we look daily into these things, whether they're so? Well, the Thessalonians obviously lacked that kind of diligence. Whatever their other issues were, they certainly lacked that. And that's what uh, Paul uh, really is referring to here in that regard. Well, this message really isn't for the choir, and even though we don't have one per se, uh, I'm addressing most of those people that are coming in. We have a lot of people coming in to understand the truth. And they have all sorts of questions. We deal with them every day, questions that they call in about, that they email us about, they contact us, because they have all sorts of questions. Because what we're saying is not what they have grown up to believe or understood all their lives. So I'm talking about those that are mired in church tradition, basically, primarily those that engage us. You know, the masses are satisfied with just a surface understanding. We were there once. I can't say, you know, I can't fault them too much when I realize that, hey, we had the same problem back then. We just kind of went along with the flow, you know, went to church and, and just kind of, you know, that was, that was what we did. Uh, they're, they're, they're involved in gospel light, L-I-T-E, when it should be L-I-G-H-T. So when the desire should be there, they're too afraid or maybe too flummoxed to even question what, what is what. They just don't know. They don't know enough, so what do they do? They go to the minister and, you know, where it goes from there. So that means they're stuck in neutral the rest of their lives, and the Bible is not their priority anyway, so that's pretty much the size of it. You know them. They're like your relatives and friends as well as mine. They're all over the place. In a few weeks, during the upcoming Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're going to examine our beliefs. That's one of the purposes of the feast, to examine what you believe and make sure that you're on the right track in your understanding. And when it comes to proving your beliefs against Scripture, most people just trust what they've always been told, whatever they grew up with. My mother, my father, my grandparents, they wouldn't steer me wrong, so I just go along with it. You know, really, it's, you think about it, that's a pretty reckless leap of faith. When you're talking about your entire future eternity and leaving it up to somebody else without looking at the scriptures, proving it to yourself, it's, it's dangerous. Falling for whatever you were taught. Ask yourself, is warming a pew a few minutes, maybe a half hour, once a week, each week, is that really what pleases Yahweh? Is that really what he wants in worship? And then you go back out doing, you know, your regular, your, your regular self after that. No, no real changes come about. Can you honestly say that qualifies as worship? Can you say that? Can he say that? No, he doesn't say that. 
According to biblical definition, according to the, uh, to the pattern set in the Old Testament, and Yasha's own example, it certainly doesn't square with that scenario. Paul told young Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself this word approved. Approved. Unto Elohim, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dividing, discriminating what it says and comparing it with what you believe. Making sure that what you know and understand is right because you're dividing. You're going back and forth in the word. That means everybody must prove their own beliefs, not just leave it to a minister. Dig into it. means compare your verses that you believe, with other verses. Go to the Hebrew. Go to the Greek. Go to other translations if you have to. If you put your foundation on sand, it's not going to stand. We were, that building over there, we were, we were uh, constructing it, and they had a problem with that far corner. I'm not saying don't sit there, <laughs> but uh, they didn't seem to hit, you know, they kept digging and digging and digging. I thought, what's going on here? I asked our contractor, well, was there a problem here? And he said, well, they're trying to hit solid. In other words, trying to hit the bedrock. It wasn't there. And they had to keep on going and going, and finally, I guess they did. But they know if, if you don't, that thing is going to crack, it's going to shift, and you've got major problems. And they didn't want that. So I guess what we got to do, too, when we look at the Bible, is we got to go to solid. we got to make sure that it's exactly what the Scripture says. And that takes some study. Even though the Bible is a big book, discovering its fundamentals really isn't that difficult. Once you start in the right way and go through it. Yahweh never intended his word to be understood by those with seminary degrees only. Anyone can know the truth if they will have an open mind to it and not start negating, you know, things. Well, I don't really have to do that. That doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't really say that. It doesn't really mean that. You know, if you just have an open mind and say, okay, I want, to, I want Yahweh to show me the truth. And so you start whichever way you want. One guy asked me, well, how do I start Bible study? Do I just start reading in Genesis and read through? Or do I pick a, pick a topic and start, you know, analyzing the topic? Get some reference works. I said, whatever works. Whatever works for you. Whatever sticks better in your mind as long as you get into the word and start studying it. Paul tells us to give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.13. Most churches fail all three of those. All three of them. You don't have to read the Bible. You don't even have to bring it to services. Whatever it says, you don't worry about because that's all been done away. That's exhortation. And to doctrine. Well, you don't have to worry about that either. Uh, grace covers all. They seem to fear that, too. They, they fear doctrine. They don't exhort their listeners to do what it says. And I guess if they do, then they could be up to some scrutiny. You know, They might come to the minister and say, wait a minute, you told me to start following Scripture. We're not doing that here in this church. Well, then they got to you know, blow it off somehow. Well, we need to know the word so that our beliefs match. Be prepared be prepared to be shocked when you open up your Bible and start studying for what it says for yourself. The average churchgoer is going to find quickly that much of what he assumed bears no resemblance to what he's reading in the Word. 
I'm saying much of it. And that's really saying something. That should be a shocker. Most of today's beliefs, traditions, and practices grew out of ancient customs and teachings that developed over thousands of years. So naturally, they're going to have a a semblance of stability because they've just been around for so long. You know, that's the way we've always done it, the old argument. Teachings that develop from outside influences like Greek paganism, Roman paganism, Nordic paganism, where a lot of Christian Christmas uh, practices come from. The old universal sun worship. You find the sun in about everything. These facts have been an open book for millennia, yet they've been covered up because for fear of what you might discover when you start digging into them. In Matthew 15, 18, uh, 15, 8, Yasha quoted a revealing prophecy from Isaiah when he said, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips. Sounds good. They say all the right things. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for what? Doctrines, the commandments of men. Of men. Tradition. Church tradition. Whatever. And that's what tradition mostly is. Man-made worship. Developed, developed. If you go back into history, you can see how it all developed. In 1 Kings 12, the apostate Jeroboam, the first king of the northern ten tribes, set up calf worship at Dan and Bethel. He became the first apostate leader in scripture of note. He created his own Feast of Tabernacles in the eighth month, and he wanted all people to come up there. Don't go to Jerusalem. Come up here. We, 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 have, we have the truth up here. Come on up here. And so in doing this, he, he set a pattern for the churches to establish their own worship from that point on apart from scripture. Same thing today. To wit, if you change worship by telling the worshiper that his or her salvation rests entirely in and through the church, you're going to greatly impact belief. Teach from a Grecianized Latin Bible, and you subtly influence doctrine by the cultural vibes that each language brings forth naturally. It's going to have a certain feel to it as opposed, say, to Hebrew. Change the center of worship from Jerusalem to Rome, and you impact even the atmosphere of worship. Kind of like going into a stained glass church with, you know, pipe organ and all that. There's a certain ambiance you feel when you go in there, which doesn't feel like Yasha standing by the seashore preaching with the wind blowing and the smells and all of that. Totally different. Invent new terminology, calling it, the Holy Roman Church, like the Holy Roman Empire, which it patterned itself after, by the way, in its hierarchy, that greatly impacts doctrine. Switch Sabbath worship to Sunday. Directly deviate from doctrine. Directly. Change biblical ordinances into counterfeit rites and rituals, like daily or weekly communion instead of the Passover. And you replace truth. Switch worship from Yahweh to the priesthood and create an office of vicar. And teach that this vicar of Messiah is the prince of the apostles and direct successor in the line of the apostles after Peter. You're going to influence worship in a big way that way. Saying he has the truth. Did not anyone look at the qualifications of the apostolic office in the last 2,000 years? What the Bible says an apostle is. 
Did no one ever look at that? It was a key requirement for a replacement of Judas, remember? When they chose Matthias, he had to meet certain qualifications to be an apostle. Acts one twenty one, Beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Resurrection. For a church office of ordination, he had to be a witness of Yahshua's resurrection to be an apostle. Which all of them were. Even Paul. Of course, he, after Yahshua's resurrection, he communed with Yahshua directly. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabas, and who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Yahweh, which knows the hearts of all men, show whether of these two you have chosen that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship. <coughs> From which Judas, by transgression, fell that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Question, how many apostles were there? 14, right? 14 apostles. You got Judas, you got Paul, you got Matthias. Additional. Now, you can't add Pope to the apostolic line because the definition of witnesses, they witnessed the resurrected Messiah, the definition, the very definition of what a witness is doesn't have successors. You either saw it or you didn't. No, the takeaway is whenever you have a man-made doctrine, take a close look, you're invariably going to find flaws in it, things that don't match with Scripture. Shot full of holes, possibly, as we find in the Easter replacement for Passover. There are so many things wrong with that. Comparing Easter to Passover, there's so many things that are wrong in the, in the Easter observance that don't match Passover. There are reasons men invent their own worship, and it's usually not out of ignorance. It's because they want the honor, the glory for themselves. Like Hasatan, he started it all. I'll rise up. I'll be, I'll be great. I'll be like Elohim. Hey, Eve, you can do it, do it too. Hey. Wow, what an enticement. Think about it. What an enticement. He could be like Yahweh himself. I'm talking about literally like Yahweh himself. And that idea has filtered down through the history of false teachings. To have that power, to have glory. So to do that, you've got to deviate from the truth. You can't preach the truth because someone else out there is already doing it, possibly. So you've got to have a, a deviation. You've got you to have your own tweak. Look, well, we're, we're doing this right. They don't do it right. We, this is what we do. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll follow you then. So they have to make up their own doctrines, and that's basically what kind of happened through history. The early church, in an effort to subject their followers, established a big hierarchy of rulership patterned after the Roman government, after the secular state empire of Rome. You know, there's only one mediator between Yahweh and man, and that is Yahshua. There's nobody else in between. There's no virgin in between. There's no other apostle, only bishop of Rome in between. There's only Yahshua. No man can do what Yahshua can do, Yahshua has done, or what Yahshua is now doing. 
The title of vicar also means he has the same jurisdictional power as Joshua. But Joshua never delegates to any man that power to do whatever Joshua promised. He never gave that power to any man. Many teachings that developed at the time were used to subjugate the masses, to be in control of them. Cults like to do this too, to be in control. They come up with stuff to say, oh, you're going to lose your salvation if you ever leave here, things like that. Or such as threatening to, to burn forever in hellfire if you didn't adhere to sacraments. Or spending time in torture, stuck in purgatory. You don't want that. Do what we say and you won't have to worry about that. You confess your sins to a priest and thereby allow the church to hold it over you. When the Bible doesn't talk about that, it's somebody you wronged, you confess your sins, your wrongdoing to them. Joshua said in Matthew 18, that's the whole, he gave us the whole scenario. First you go to the person. If he doesn't listen, you bring in another one as a witness. If that doesn't listen, you go to the assembly. This isn't telling a priest everything so that he can... Heaven forbid, blackmail you sometime. Whatever. By the way, the church gets its authority for priestly confession from James 5.16, which perverts the verse. It means when you wrong someone, you offend someone, you trespass against someone, go to them and straighten it out. Don't lose sleep over it. Don't let it hang over you for the rest of your life. Go to them, straighten it out. And that's what we do really before Passover too. We look at our lives, we examine our lives, prepare to take the Passover in a clear conscience and do everything we can to be right with Yahweh. Uh, It's not something you do with a third party who has nothing to do with either of you or with what you have done. A monumental, monumental deviation came when the church changed the weekly worship time from Sabbath to Sunday. They don't always, you know, technically they're not saying, oh, we changed Sabbath. We changed the worship day. That's how they say it. Say, what day is the Sabbath? Well, it's the seventh day. I know. We know that. But we don't worship. We worship on Sunday. That's how they describe that. And that move struck at the very heart of true worship because the Sabbath day is the very sign of Yahweh's people. It's the very sign between us and him. You change that. You're in no man's land because you're not connected with him anymore when you don't keep the Sabbath. Sorry to say, but that's what the scriptures say. It's the sign between me and my people. That's how important the Sabbath is. And that's usually the the spring point from those who enter the truth from where they were. Usually it's a Sabbath day. They understand the Sabbath. I'm not keeping it when I keep the first day of the week. When I go out and mow the yard on Saturday, I go paint the, paint the house or clean the garage. I'm not honoring Yahweh's day. It's a set apart. So that's oftentimes the springboard to truth, the Sabbath day. And it should be because that's where it starts. It's the very sign of the true follower. If you don't observe the Sabbath, how can you be one of his? Let's read Ezekiel 20.12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am Yahweh that sanctifies them. Sanctify means to set apart. We use the word holy in the same way. Set apart. Anything as critical as a sign of the true worshiper must never be modified, 
changed, substituted. This is, we're talking about solid here. And this is the day that Yahweh created to be worshipped on. He himself set it apart. So, anything as critical as that, you can't mess with it, can't tweak it, can't substitute for it. You have to follow it precisely as the scriptures inspired it. No wonder it's the Sabbath that usually draws people into the truth. And despite this crystal clear mandate, this mandate in the scriptures, most ignore the Sabbath day. And they give you all sorts of reasons that you don't have to keep it. Maybe you've heard of some of the common justifications. Well, yeah, I know it's the seventh day. and so, But, you know, I rest in Messiah. He's my rest. We've heard that. I keep the Sabbath in my heart. I guess while I'm out working in the mud, cleaning the garage, whatever filthy thing I'm doing, I'm keeping the Sabbath in my heart. As well as, well, I rely on Yahshua's righteousness, not my own. I can't do anything. We've all heard that. And it's that last one that doesn't square with the coming judgment, does it? Think about it. Think hard about it. What's to judge about you if you throw your righteousness on Yahshua? There's nothing then in your life to judge, right? Why is there a judgment? Doesn't make sense. If you're not guilty of anything because you throw your righteousness on Yahshua... No judgment is going to affect you. Again, shot full of holes when you look at the scriptures. And this, it also, uh, you know, it, not only does it clear you of any wrongdoing at any time of your life, but these excuses show a, a, really a cavalier attitude and ignorance on multiple levels. The biggest being that the person who uses them has no idea what Yahweh's salvation plan is and how we might As the young man said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? Not what must I think, not what must I rely on, not whose righteousness do I follow. He says, what must I do? And Yahshua didn't contramand that. He didn't say, oh, and wait a minute, wait a minute, there's nothing to do. (laughs) You don't have to do anything, Just, just trust in my righteousness. Perfect time to say that, but he never did, right? The person using it has no idea what salvation is all about, and how we fit into it. They don't understand that rewards require something of us like any rewards do. Even worldly rewards require something, typically. You have to do something to be honored for doing something. Anyway, as the old saying goes, nothing is easy, but who wants nothing? It reminds me of a former brother who wanted to sign me up for a money-making scheme he came up with. He called it passive selling, which is unscriptural for one thing. Uh, Basically, you reap the rewards of other people's work. You just sit back and haul it in. You don't do anything. No personal investment, no involvement. It sounded like a chain letter and a Ponzi scheme all wrapped up into one, and I said, no, thank you. I don't have anything... Of it, the scriptures command us to work, 
to, to benefit from the, the labors of our hands. We don't sit back and just get something for nothing if we are any way able to do so. It kind of sounds like those who rest in Messiah, you know. He does it all for me. I just sit back. It says, because he changed for us, we enter into the kingdom with some unchanged heart. We don't need to do anything more. Just, just as a, you know, uh, Billy Graham, who, of course, just passed away. At, uh, he, was, he was an amazing uh, speaker. But one, one thing I always had, uh, it kind of rankled me, is the fact they always sang this song, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. We don't approach Yahweh that way. We approach Yahweh in repentance of what we've done and ask for his forgiveness. But they always played that song, and I always had an issue with that. Anyway, it's all an excuse for not doing what most intuitively know you must do. Even the pagans know that. Suppose a job requires a college degree and five years of experience, and you want to apply for that job. Does having these basic qualifications guarantee you the job? Maybe you've got those qualifications. Does that mean you're going to get it automatically? No. It only says your application is worth reviewing because you've met the minimum. It is the prerequisite that filters out all but the most qualified or eligible candidates. These are minimal requirements that have to be met, but meeting them only makes you a candidate. It doesn't say that anything about your ability to do the job. That would be proven later. It says nothing about whether you get along with others, which is a big key in holding a job. If anyone who's held a job knows, it's like 70% to get along with others. You can't get along with your coworkers. You're not going to last long. It doesn't say whether you will be punctual every day, hardworking, honest, motivated, dedicated, and loyal to your employer. Being eligible is not the same as deserving. It just says you meet the standard minimal requirement. Whether you actually get the position is up to the employer. Same thing with Yahweh. He has a minimal requirement. He has a pool of people. He calls, calls many in this pool of people. But he only chooses a portion of that. Many are called Few are chosen, you see. You're called because there's something within you that you have the right stuff and Yahweh can use you in his kingdom, in his government. But whether you make it that far depends on lots of things that have to do with you and whether you're going to uh, come to the terms that Yahweh has set. Not meeting the basics immediately puts you on the elimination pile. You won't get past the application desk. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 that unrepentant sinners will not see the kingdom. Read about the sins that will keep you out of the kingdom. How does that have to do with trusting in Yahshua's righteousness? Oh, I trust in Yahshua's righteousness. I can go out and be the worst guy in the world. Commit all sorts of crimes and heinous things. But I trust in Yahshua's righteousness. Now, where does it, where do we break this down? Where's the cutoff point? See, none of this makes sense that you hear in churchianity today. It's just an excuse. And being that, that sin, in fact, they won't even define what sin is. We define it as law-breaking, just as John does. Obedience comes 
right at the top for qualifications, right at the top. But sadly, too many are immediately eager to throw out the minimal requirements, these must-haves that make you worthy of a closer look. Modern clerics say that obedience is not needed for life everlasting, that the standards Yahweh set are unnecessary. Yahshua is the only one who needs them. He has obedience in his life, and therefore we don't need to. So I guess in our analogy, only the boss needs the education, right? Transfer that to your job application. All these standards. I guess only the boss needs that. You don't have to have those. That's what they're saying. I trust in his righteousness. He earned the diploma. He has the skills, so you don't need them. Rely on his abilities and hard-won success. That'll make you qualified for the job, they say. Does this make any sense? Punch in every day, watch the boss work, sit back, drink a Coke, pick up your paycheck at the end of the week. That's all you need to do. How do the boss's capabilities make you fit for the job? If all it took was his aptitude, and he wouldn't need you. Why would he have you sitting there taking his profits for doing nothing? But if he's growing an organization, as Yahweh's growing his kingdom, he needs the right people in those positions that he needs to fill in his growing family. He needs good people below him. How will he get good? By doing what he says. In Matthew 19, 16, a young man came to Yahshua, applying for a position in the kingdom. Which must I do to be saved, he asked. Keep the commandments, Yahshua responded. Meet the minimal requirements. Well, to clarify further what he meant, Yahshua even listed several of his father's laws. You shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I've done all that all my life. That's nothing new to me, the guy told him. I already have the degree. I already have the years of experience. Then prove it, Yasha said. Prove that you can do the job. Show me my ways, or show me how my ways and commands have changed you. Show me, demonstrate it. Sell everything you have. Show me the change that obedience has had in your life, to change the priorities of your life to something greater than just yourself. Seek a different kind of treasure. Prove to me that you have the right stuff and the right spiritual goals with your knowledge and your obedience. Show me. Stop coveting. Turn from the world's ways. Show me that you put others above yourself. Have you done that? He didn't come back and say, oh, that I've done. (laughs) No, he was dead to rights, and he knew it. He had not done that. Prove to me, he says. You can give without love, but you can't love without giving. What you do to brethren, you do to me, Yahshua said. Show how you love me by giving of yourself to others. That's how you show love to me, Yahshua said. Not necessarily here, but in in his teachings. Well, the man couldn't do such things. He, he, you see, the, the rubber meets the road when the heart is involved. When it goes to the heart, that's where it makes the difference. 
his heart hadn't changed. He could go through the motions, but the law is the roadmap to change. It reveals exactly how a transformed heart is to act. Your obedience reveals a converted heart that puts Yahweh first in everything. True change comes from within. And that is the heart Yahshua taught. That's the whole point of obedience, to change you within because then he can use you. Then he knows that, yeah, you qualify for this position in my kingdom because I can see that your heart is now different. You have converted. Obeying the one you worship separates the true follower from the apathetic, apathetic dabbler. In the final analysis, none of us is innately worthy, but must by our actions and our behavior become that way. That's the whole, it's a whole life of learning. These lessons become worthy. That's why we study to show ourselves approved so we can learn more and more how he wants us to be. Not for ourselves, because our heart now is on him. I just want to please him. You know, we're reminded in Hebrews eleven six, 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to Elohim must believe that he is and that he is the reward of them, rewarder of them that diligently seek him. See, that's where it all lies. How do you diligently, quote, unquote, seek him? Well, let's compare how other faiths diligently conduct their worship. How do they do it? As a heathen, you knew that the one you worshipped expected certain things. For one thing, he had a name that tied him or her to specific worship. Dagon, Moloch, Athena. They had specific names. They identified them as a certain deity. And you know through that name what they expected. Not generic titles. They had names. The god Moloch, for example, the sun deity of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, he's mostly known by child sacrifice, as awful as that was. That's what you do when you worship Moloch. You didn't just question it. You did it because that's what a pagan did. He spent his whole life appeasing his deities. Sun worship and the renewal of life was big in the lives of the heathen in history because the sun was essential to survival. Cut off the sun like in an eclipse. That was a very scary thing, by the way. The whole, everything goes dark. Well, that was scary. Maybe that sun mighty one is uh, not pleased with me, with us. What are we going to do? We see vestiges of this every now and then in December 25th, time of the winter solstice, when the sun kind of sunk back into the horizon and then the days got shorter. By the way, daylight savings times tonight, perfect time to mention that. When lights and evergreen and mistletoe are prominently displayed because they're green, they're life, we can hold on to them. Everything else around us is dying. So evergreens became big in the worship of Christmas. Mistletoe was also big. Harking back to a time when the return of the sunlight was seen as giving life once again to a dying planet. You know, in some ways, you really, it's, it's hard to, I mean, I'm glad Yahweh's the judge. But uh, to understand pagan worship, you've got to realize 
what they were going through in their lives back then. It's not like today. They had, they had obstacles that we don't face as much. They had a much more precarious life than we do. Just trying to survive was a huge part of living for an ancient. We're talking about a time when a tooth abscess or pneumonia would kill you. When your life expectancy was between the ages of 20 and 40. And when it took at least five children per family just to maintain the population level. Because children died. No wonder they were worried. No wonder they had these deities to bow down to so that these things didn't happen to them. The deity of the sun, the deity of the water, the deity of the ocean, the deity of, you know, they had one for everything. Crops, everything you can think of. I can see why they did it, but Paul comes along and says, look, you're looking at the wrong direction. You've got to serve Yahweh and these things will be protected from you. They lived in an undercurrent of fear. So when they faced destructive forces like floods and hurricanes and tornadoes, it was all seen as a serious threat to their existence. They must have done something wrong in the way they worshipped their deity or you wouldn't be doing these things. The deities are angry, and appeasement was the order of the day. When it came to worshiping Moloch or Baal or Brahma or Zeus or Mithra, same thing. You either did what they expected and do what was required, or you faced the consequences. If you did not practice the worship demanded and performed every sacrifice, you were not in the faith. And moreover, you likely would not survive long, they thought. If the pagans required such dedication to the deities they worshipped, what about us? We're pathetic in that regard, aren't we, in this world? I don't mean just, I don't mean us, but I mean, the world is pathetic when they claim to worship Yahweh. Yahweh expects sacrifice of our worship, our devotion, our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our time, our resources. He expects it too. Yahweh's will is found throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Yahshua gave us the example. This is how you live the scriptures, which was the Old Testament. That's all he had. His will is impossible to miss. It's on virtually every page of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible... It's all over the place. The Torah. And then the New Testament. Yahshua replied, his father's will to his life is to obey my father by example and how I show you to live. You know, some guy said to me, well, how do, how do you know what's truth? I said, all I got to do is follow Yahshua. What did he do? What did he teach? What did he obey? You know, he kept the Sabbath. He kept the feasts. All of these things, the commandments, if they weren't necessary, why did he show us to do that? As I've said before, why didn't he at some point just say, okay, all right, I've preached for three and a half years, my ministry, fellas, apostles, disciples. Now, I'm going to be going. won't be long now. Passover, I'll be dead. Just wipe away everything that I told you. It was all, it was all for nothing. Don't even think about it. Just go along and don't worry about anything that I did for you, anything that I taught. It's all going to be wiped away because that's New New Testament. We're not talking Old Testament anymore. Why would he do that? What a deception that would be. Good night. 
But that's the reasoning that people use. We're New Testament now. We don't have to do all that stuff. Well, then why did Joshua, why did his apostles continue on after he was gone? Same thing. Same thing he did. The Apostle Peter was quite clear when he wrote in 1 Peter 2.21, For even here unto were you called, because Messiah also suffered for us. Notice the next clause. Leaving us an example. Let that sink in. That you should follow in his steps. And what was the walk that we must follow? Next phrase. Who did no sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth. There's the example. That's that's the goal. That's what we're aiming at. Yeah, he went through a lot of tribulation for us, and we follow him. We'll inevitably get tribulation. He even said so. You follow my way, you're going to have tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer, I've overcome it. You can too. Just as thunder follows lightning... You're going to have tribulation in this world. We'll face the flack from others that inevitably comes. We're seeing the light of truth. Testing and trials are what everyone who follows his son can expect. These are challenges to our faith. That's all they are, to test our faith and our resolve. Do we give up? Do we let something that happened drive us away from the truth? Trials come with changing our life to one of obedience, not something to run from. Peter talks about the trial of faith. Yahshua said in Matthew 5.11 that one is blessed when persecuted for the Savior's sake. I say look for him. Then you know you're on the right track. People out there, churchianity, don't have any trials? Well, everybody does, but I'm talking about serious trials. I would have to question, am I on the right path? Because what I'm experiencing is not what Yahshua experienced. Look what he had to fight. Man, he had enemies all over the place. Finally, they did him in. They killed him. So if you don't have any trials, I think you need to start suspecting your walk. Make some changes. We look for a far better life. In one of his many prophetic statements, Yahshua said, These things I have spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16.33. So, you know, yeah, trials are just for a short time, he said that. But there's something much greater and much more worth the effort, much more worth going through some of these things in life for the rewards that are there. Could that also mean that we're also to overcome the world? Yeah, of course. John, 1 John 2.6 says to follow Yahshua in all that he did and taught, which included the old commandment. That's implicit in the meaning of discipleship. A disciple is somebody who's learning, following. That's the definition of a disciple. We follow what he did. We learn what he taught. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. How can we say that's Old Testament? We don't need it. You can't, or you're denying Yahshua. The old commandment is the word, he said, which you had from the beginning. 
He didn't have that word when he was preaching that. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. It had to have been the Old Testament. It's what you had from the beginning. That's what you were taught. A disciple of the Savior will not just acknowledge what he did and talk about it, but also follow his example. That's where the rubber meets the road. Obedience to his father, Yahweh. Well, brethren, the Passover is coming three weeks, I guess, from now, quickly. We each need to prepare spiritually for that time, prepare our hearts for the time when we follow Yahshua through the sufferings and through the, the death that he gave so that we might have life. That's our whole goal during the Passover. And for the unleavened bread feast that follows, you need to do even the simple things like start using up your leavening right now so you don't have to throw it away and waste it when that time comes. Eat that bread. You know, <laughs> you can always tell when uh, it's really getting close because the pantry back there usually gets full of bread and crackers and all this stuff that people bring because they want to throw it away before the feast. And, uh, and that's good. I mean, yeah, we, we'll probably see a lot of that in a few days ahead each Sabbath as we draw closer, but there aren't that many Sabbaths left, you know, three Sabbaths or so. So anyway, may you have a blessed feast and Passover coming up. May we all enjoy this time of learning and studying and growing in the truth. That's what the feast is supposed to be all about. So may we each do that as we strive to overcome, become a different type of people that Yahweh's looking for, to get that reward, that position in the kingdom. We want to serve him forever, and that's our main goal, just to serve him. May Yahweh bless you.